All right. Thank you, Cameron. That was a beautiful song and enjoyed it immensely. I am just delighted to be with you in chapel. You could probably imagine that. I counted a deep privilege and I was sitting down there on the front row watching all the stuff, the preliminaries. And I know you guys look at uh, Brother uh, Tyler uh, Johnson and Dr. Bird as some of the old adults in the room, but I remember teaching them and I, they looked pretty young to me and I was thinking about the fact that uh, I've been here now since 2001, so I've spent 22 years in Lancaster, some of those as a student, and I've, I've started to get old here. I'm 40 this year and I love it. I love what I do. I love, uh, want to thank Pastor Chapel and Dr. Getch and others for the opportunity to speak here today. I love West Coast Baptist College. Uh, I love serving the Lord. I love Southern California. Uh, but you know what? I love you guys. It really is what makes West Coast uh, a place to love and worth spending my life at, or at least my life that God's given me to this point. It really is you. And it's an honor for me to be here. And I am really, really privileged to do so. Take your Bibles, if you would, and go to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 3. We'll get there in a moment. Uh, chapter 5, rather. 1 Corinthians 5 is where we'll be. I want to take just a minute on a, a side note of kind of an announcement, since you guys do know me as the academic guy and overseeing a lot of that. We were talking this last, yesterday in an office, how are we going to remind students about the, the, the attendance policy? How many want to hear about attendance policy today? You don't have to raise your hand or say amen, but I want to just take a minute and uh, do an announcement here before the message. I just wanted to remind you, first I want to implore you, uh, first commend you. You've done such a good job this semester. You really are doing well. I want to implore you, make class attendance a priority. You need to be in class. It is a part of your education, and it's required to complete your courses, and a lot of you are doing fine. This is just for a couple of you, but I didn't want you to have bad information. Here's what you need to know, because we've got senior uh, interview days coming up. Where's our seniors at? All right, let's see our seniors. Yeah, they're all over. They're excited to get out of here. They're excited about interview days. We have a volleyball team. Man, ladies, congratulations last night. That was awesome. I like any victory, but uh, Antelope Valley College, that's, that's a pretty good team to beat right there. And uh, proud of you guys. I know it's, been, it's taken a toll. You guys have traveled some and missed some classes for that. And we've got uh, next week, youth conference, and just a lot of things coming up. Here's what you need to know. Uh, all absences from class are excused absences, but you cannot miss more than 15% or you're dropped. You have to retake that class and it's entered as an F. So here's why we say that, because sometimes I hear people and seniors, you guys, you guys know this, but uh, once in a while I'll even hear a senior say, hey, is that absence an excused absence? Let's say, let's say somebody asks you to run to the airport and pick up a missionary for missions conference. Is that an excused absence to be gone from class? Absolutely. Uh, that's an excused absence. Let's say you just were up too late playing a, a, a whatever you play, and uh, you're just going to sleep in the next morning. Is that an excused absence from class? Well, that is an excused absence from class. Here's the thing. All absences are excused absences, but you can't go over 15%. Just want to make sure you're thinking about that. Now, there are some cases where there's a funeral in the family or you're, you're uh, in a hospital bed for a few days or something. Uh, that's why we have, we call it the bucket, that 15%. But if you do go over, there's a reinstatement petition you can fill out. 
But you need to know that's for extenuating circumstances. That's not just because you just went over. So I don't want you to fail classes. That's why I'm saying this. It's not for my benefit. It's for yours. So keep an eye on that, and you can track that in your portal. This next week, I think this week is midterm exams. Next week, I think we're starting our oral exams for the senior men. And some of you have oral exams scheduled starting next week. Last couple of years, as my administrative responsibilities has increased, I've been able to do less and less and less. Last year, I don't think I did any of those. Uh, but the good news is I'm back. I'm on the oral schedule. And uh, some of you may uh, be teamed up with uh, me and a couple others. I was thinking over the last years, I've enjoyed doing orals now for quite a while, and I was thinking of some of the worst answers we've had in orals. I've got an Evernote list of these. In fact, the title of the Evernote is How to Fail Orals. <laughs> uh, and uh, I've got, gotten some good replies over the years. One of them was, I remember talking to a guy, these are things not to say next week if you have orals. We were talking to a guy, and we asked him to defend his position on Scripture, preservation specifically, and he right away had a verse, John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Like, all right, tell us how that works. How does that help with your uh, preservation of Scripture? And he was like, well, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and bless God, it's still here. <laughs> like, so just to be clear, you believe that the Bible is God? Long pause. That's not where you want to go when you're talking about bibliology. Talk to another guy. We're talking about apostles in the church today, and we asked the question, do you believe that there are apostles in the church today? In the modern church, do we still have apostles? And the student said, no. Correct answer. Usually we want a right answer and a couple Bible verses, uh, a little bit of an explanation. So we asked him, um, okay, why do you not believe that there are apostles in the church today? And he said, well, they're all dead. That was a long time ago. So... <laughs> Yes, they're all dead. We need some Bible on that as well. And then this is my all-time favorite. I, you will not, for any amount of money, get me to tell you who this is. And I'm very serious about that. I never would. Because I respect your confidentiality. If you say something dumb, I might repeat it. I'll never say who said it. But <laughs> this, was, this was an amazing oral exam. Um, I won't even say who I was with. It doesn't work here now. But we were, we were having this oral exam, and this young student had, a, had a, a unique blend of dogmatism with arrogance and ignorance. It just Sometimes those correlate together. It's a bad, bad correlation. So very dogmatic and very thin understanding of Scripture. And uh, it was a bad oral. It really was. It was not going well. So my partner and I, were getting to the end, we we're getting on to eschatology, and my partner said this verbatim, okay, one question left, give us a rough overview of the end times. And I tell you what, it was an absolute face plant. He wasn't even close. <laughs> he was getting passages wrong, he, was, he, he had no idea, he knew what he believed. In fact, he said this, I, I may not be able to defend what I believe, but you'll never change my mind. Well... <laughs> Bullheadedness doesn't get you extra points. I right? want to support it from Scripture. So he absolutely slaughtered eschatology. He had no idea what he was doing, and I think he got a sense of it, but he wasn't quite cued in uh, to the end. And uh, after he finished, here's what he said verbatim. He looked up, and he asked, Was that rough enough? <laughs> yes, that was rough enough. That was incredibly rough. He did not pass his orals that day. That was his rough overview. So if you're in orals next week, 
avoid those three errors and hopefully you'll do fine. 1 Corinthians chapter number 5 is a passage that I've really thought a lot about for a couple of years. I've never preached from it, I, uh, but I've really thought through this a lot. And, and I want to take this passage today, and uh, we're going to preach Scripture. One of the things I appreciate about West Coast Baptist College is the emphasis on quality hermeneutics and exposition. Uh, it's a good idea to usually not preach a verse, but to preach a passage, and we want to preach the Word. That's what Paul told Timothy, and we're going to do that this morning. The passage we have before us, we're going to work our way through this entire chapter. And here's why. Here's why it's fascinating to me. There's a lot of Bible passages and a lot of preaching that talks about what should a, how should a Christian respond to sin within us. And that is important. You get that wrong, you're not going to be a good follower of Christ. And if that was our goal, how to respond to sin within us, we would be talking about confession, and we talk about repentance, and we talk about sanctification, and we need to know those biblical truths. But the chapter we're about to begin does not focus on our response to sin within us. Instead, it focuses on our response to sin around us. And the reality is there is sin around us and we have to respond correctly if we're going to be followers of Christ. And once you know it, the, the church here at Corinth, they didn't respond correctly. How many of you could just about guess that? I mean, the church at Corinth makes most of the mistakes in the book, it seems. And Paul here is lovingly writing to them to correct them. And there are three distinct mistakes that we'll see in this passage. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll jump into the passage. Father, we love you. We want to come before you again and I just want to thank you for the privilege to know you and to serve you. Lord, thank you for dying on the cross for a sinner as unworthy as I. And Lord, give me the privilege of any of the things that I could have done with my life. Lord, thank you for giving me the privilege of doing something that has eternal significance, of something that is of service to others. Lord, thank you for allowing me to serve you and Lord, thank you for every person in this room and for our collective desire that you'd be pleased with our lives, that you'd be revival to our generation, that you'd call labors into the harvest, that you would, uh, Lord, through our lives and our involvement, see the gospel wrap around the world and our generation and complete the Great Commission. Lord, there's... There's a lot of things in our peripheral, maybe from news or from updates or from uh, pieces of events that we're aware of. But Lord, today we rest in you and we rest in the cross and our hope is in you. And Father, we know of your ability because we look at the resurrection. We know of your love because we look at the cross. And Father, as we open your word, we see your wisdom today. And I pray that you would help us as we open your word to to see it, to understand it, and to apply it. And Father, uh, we do promise you the glory for what you do in our brief assembly here this morning. In Christ's name, amen. What do you do with sin around you? Paul begins 1 Corinthians by really defending his apostleship. They were people there that were trying to discount what he said and who he was. So for a couple chapters, he gives several different arguments for his apostleship. And starting in chapter 5, there's a whole series of things he's going to respond to. 
Chapter number 6, he's going to begin talking about should Christians sue each other? Chapter number 7, should Christians get married? Chapters 8 and 9, should Christians pay their, uh, the apostles and the pastors? And there's all these different issues that the church was having. And then eventually, of course, tongues and sign gifts, all of that's in here. And Paul here in chapter number 5 is beginning that section of the book. And the top thing on his mind was something that he had heard repeatedly. Look at verse number 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 1. He says, it is reported commonly that there is fornication among you. It is reported commonly. The word here is uh, holos, like holistically. Literally everywhere it's reported that there's fornication among you. Paul says, I go to one city, I go to another city, I go to the next church, and, and I'm, I'm hearing a murmur. I'm hearing there's kind of a buzz out. There's, there's people everywhere I go. It's commonly reported that there's fornication among you. Let me just take a real quick sidebar and say, as Christians, we need to be careful of gossip. It's unfortunate that while we're given commands against gossip as sin, it's pretty common, isn't it? Is there any gossip that still happens at West Coast Baptist College? Because I know there was when I was a student and when I was in the dorms. And I just want to say, you can opt out of the cycle of gossip pretty easily. You just take it to the person or you just say you're not interested. You can literally walk away. But for, for, for whatever reason, there's a lot of gossip going on. And everywhere Paul went, he was hearing about this, this issue. And here's the issue. That at the church of Corinth, there was fornication in the congregation. In fact, not only is the fact of fornication disturbing to Paul, he says, the exact thing I'm hearing, it blows my mind. Look what he says here in verse number one. This fornication is such as is not as much named among the Gentiles. Oh my goodness. There was sin in the church at Corinth that was so bad, that was so awful, not even Gentiles would name this sin. In fact, there is Roman law as well as Jewish law in Deuteronomy against what he's about to say here. Here it is in verse number five, that one should have his father's wife. Now you're wondering, is there a word in Greek for mother? Why doesn't it say mother here? Well, we don't think this was his mother. That's not what's happening here. Probably his father had, uh, maybe, maybe he had divorced. Probably it was an unsafe situation. We would assume nothing is said about this woman in this passage. We'll understand why at the end of the chapter. But I don't think she was saved. I don't think she was a part of the church. But probably this guy had remarried, maybe, like today, sometimes you'll see somebody that's very uh, wealthy or successful, or sometimes these old uh, guys, it could go either way, but sometimes somebody will marry somebody of a different age, maybe that had happened. I don't know, I don't know the Greek word for trophy wife, I don't know if that was going on here, but it might have been something like that. Whatever the situation was, here's the son sleeping with his dad's wife. That's awkward to say, isn't it? It's in the Bible, and Paul says, I cannot believe the type of fornication that I mean. No wonder there was a buzz. <laughs> no wonder this was gossiped about. No wonder this had gotten spread around everywhere and was commonly reported. That's unthinkable, unbelievable. Why, 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 would, why would this happen, and why would you allow this in your church? The first mistake that we see here in this passage is a mistaken tolerance. There is a mistaken tolerance because this church was tolerating what they ought not to have tolerated 
in the assembly. When I was a kid growing up, my dad was a pastor of a church in Minnesota, and there was somebody that had attended for a while, but he hadn't joined the church, and he didn't know if he wanted to, and he started talking about my dad, the pastor, and he told some people, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell uh, Pastor England uh, that I don't know why it's harder to be a member of a Baptist church than it is to just be a Christian. And I heard that. And I went to my dad, I said, hey, hey, uh, Dad, had he asked you that question? I thought it was a good question. I thought, man, that doesn't sound good at all. And my dad said, no, he's never asked me that. I wish he would, though. I said, really, what would you say if somebody asked you, why is it harder to be a member of a Baptist church than it is to be a Christian? My dad said, well, I'd take him to 1 Corinthians chapter number 5. Because here's what we see. This person apparently is a brother. This person is apparently a Christian. There are some times in the Bible where even a Christian should be separated from. And this is one of the plainest times that we'll see in Scripture. And, and what the Apostle Paul is saying here is this is a mistake to tolerate. Look at verse number 2. He says, You are puffed up, and not rather mourn, that he which hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. For verily, as... As absent in the body, but present in spirit, having judged already, as though I was present, concerning him that has done this deed, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye have gathered together in my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus this passage is not incredibly clear what Paul pictured happening. We don't know exactly how he pictured the, the, the delivering to Satan and the destruction of the flesh for the uh, deliverance of the spirit. But there's a couple things that are very plain. One of them is there's apparently protection in the congregation. There's apparently some level of protection in being in a good standing with a, an assembly, an ecclesia, a, a local church. And Paul says, hey, this Christian... He, you have to get them out of your midst. You have to, have to uh, we call this church discipline. You have to exclude him from the congregation. But there's going to come some trial with that. There's going to be some challenge with that. There's going to be some destruction to his flesh with that. It, it, there's apparently a protection in being a part of a church, a part of an assembly of Christians. There's something else that's apparent here is the purpose of discipline is restoration. This isn't punitive. This isn't like punitive justice as if I go and I break your car window and I don't have any money to pay for your car window. I, I might have to spend a couple days in jail or maybe I do have money to pay for it and I'll have to be charged to pay your window. It's punitive. I did this. This is the consequence. To kind of somebody maybe that gets out of jail after a while, they might say, I paid my dues to society. Yes, I did that. Then I went to prison. I spent a decade in prison. I paid my dues. Right? The idea is it's punitive. I've, I've kind of made it even. I, I received the punishment for what I did. That's not God's justice here at all. All of your sin was paid for by Christ on the cross. You don't need to pay for any of it. God is never punishing a Christian in a punitive sense. We're never paying for our sin. In fact, we're not punished in that sense. The Bible says God chastens us. And the chastening of a Christian isn't God trying to extract revenge on his children that are disobedient. It's God trying to draw his children back to himself. By the way, if we realize that, 
It'll help us in our lives respond to sin better. I don't ever need to hide sin. I don't ever need to run from God knowing, as it were, the sin in my life. God knows he's forgiven. I'll be chastened to bring me back to God. God's not looking to punish me. Guess who God punished for my sin? That was Jesus on the cross. But God's going to chasten. If you're his child, God's going to chasten you. And if you're in a church, what Paul says is, there's some, there's some boundaries here. By the way, as a church, we should not be a place where sin goes to hide. In the church should not be a place where the secrets of sin are suppressed. A church is not a godly church that hides sin or excuses sin or passes sin around or does their best to make sure that the authorities don't find out about some sin or worse, some crime. That's happened a few times. It doesn't happen a whole lot. It's never happened in a church that I'm aware of, that I've ever been a part of, but you've maybe heard of that. And there's some people that, uh, that have focused on this and said, hey, look at this and look at this and look at all these improprieties of this church. Guess what? Those are all wrong. Absolutely unchristian. And the first mistake that Paul identifies in this church was a mistake in tolerance. They were tolerating sin in the church. There's a second mistake he hits in verse number six. And in verse number 6, he turns from the mistake of tolerating sin to the mistaken glory. They had a mistaken tolerance, and they had a mistaken glory. Look what he says in verse number 6. Your glorying is not good. That's a pretty concise statement, isn't it? Remember Galatians 6.14, God forbid that I should glory, save in the what? Save in the cross. Not only does Paul warn us against glorying in our good deeds, Paul warns us against glorying in our accomplishments. Paul never gloried in what he did for God. Paul never gloried in his, in his trial. He listed them some, in fact, to the letter in Corinth so that they would know he's, he's not in it for gain. He's a true apostle. But Paul wasn't glorying in his service to God. Paul says, hey, I'll glory in my weakness that Christ may be strong. I'll glory in the cross and nothing else. This church wasn't glorying in how much they'd done for God. They weren't glorying in their righteousness before God. They were glorying in their sin. Do you realize there is a point in sin after it's tolerated, after it's excused, after it's accepted, there's a point where people can get to the point where they're actually glorying in their sin. By the way, this can happen in a church, this can happen in your life, this can happen in my life, and you've seen it happen, isn't, haven't you? You've seen places that call themselves churches that can glory in maybe lifestyles that completely contradict clear teaching in Scripture. How do you get to that point? The Apostle Paul here says, hey, you are glorying, and that glory is not good. There's a mistaken glory here. You're not glorying in the cross. And then in a couple of verses, he gives a concise but a beautiful picture of what it means to be in Christ in the context of the Old Testament practice of Passover. Look at verse number 6 here. He says, know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Help me out here. What's this a lump of? It's a lump of dough, a lump of bread, right? What is leaven? Leaven is yeast. Now, of all the abilities God has given me, of which they're not that extensive, one of them that is completely lacking is ability in the kitchen. 
I'm very elementary in the kitchen. I mean, I can make ramen noodles and, uh, you know, scrambled eggs and a few basic things. But I'm not really good in the kitchen. My wife is incredible in the kitchen. But I do know enough to know this. If you're going to bake a certain kind of bread, not like a biscuit, but a yeast bread, a bread that rises, it requires yeast. So I went to look up what is the ratio between yeast and the dough. And what I found surprised me. Yeast is less than 1% of the mass or weight of the dough. Less than 1%. One part in 100. And yet, if you've ever seen somebody bake bread, some of you maybe never seen somebody bake bread, but if you've ever seen somebody knead in the bread and and knead in the yeast, and then I remember uh, people putting it in the refrigerator and it kind of rises. I have no idea why you do this. As a kid, I remember punching the dough and it kind of goes down and then it kind of rised again or rose again when you put it in the oven. I don't know all the process. Here's what I know, though. Yeast... It just takes a little bit. Just a sprinkling of yeast will leaven an entire lump of bread. And what Paul is saying is that's how sin works. Sin works like that. If you take a little bit of yeast and you just scatter a little bit of yeast in, the entire bread is going to be, it's going to be completely affected by that. Young person, this is the power of sin in our life and in our midst. Sin is picturing Yeast is picturing sin here. Then he says this, yeast can, can affect the whole loaf. Young person, sin can do that. It can affect your whole life. You cannot take one part of your life and keep it segmented and say, I'm just going to keep all the sin here. Wouldn't it be nice if you could have, nobody's perfect. Everyone in this room has sinned. You've sinned. I've sinned probably within the last week. And if we say, hey, I'm going to take the sin in my life and I'm just going to make sure all the sin stays in one little corner of my life. It's not going to get out. You know what the devil tells you? You can do that. And God tells you you can't. The idea that I can take the leaven and I can keep it just in one little part. Maybe I don't stir it all the way in. I'm going to keep it in one part of the lump, or one part of the dough. Paul says, that's not going to work. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Verse number 7, what's the response here? We'll purge out, therefore, the old leaven. Now, leaven is an important part of the Jewish celebration of Passover. At Passover, of course, commemorating the blood on the doorpost and the death angel that passed over those righteous Israelites there in Egypt. When they celebrate this in the Passover, it's a week-long celebration, a week or eight days, depending on where you're located. It happens in late April. This next year will be Passover for the Jews. I think April 22nd, if I remember right, 2024 is when it begins. And this Passover, of course, today it isn't done this way, but in the Old Testament it began with the sacrificing of this uh, the lamb, the Paschal lamb, the Passover lamb. They would kill the lamb, and this was a commemoration of the animal that died and the blood that was put over the doorpost. But when Israel left, they left in such a hurry, they didn't even have time to put yeast in their bread. So this is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. If you've ever had unleavened bread, it's a little bit like hardtack. Of course, if at communion we eat unleavened bread, it reminds me of a cracker. It doesn't, you, you don't really rise it in, or have it rise and cut it like sandwich bread. It's, it's kind of hard and kind of crunchy usually, and it's unleavened. It doesn't have this in And that's all. If you were to go to a Jewish family, if you go to the Seder, the meal at the Passover, you'd sit down and you'd notice a couple things on the table. You'd notice that they had the, the I think it's matzah, that, that unleavened bread. It's kind of like a hard cracker. 
Uh, in many traditional homes, there would be a, a little cup of salt water representing the tears of the slaves in Egypt. Uh, there, would, there would be, you would eventually partake in the Passover lamb. The chairs that you sat on would often have a pillow representing that they can recline as free people now, that they're out of Israel. There's a lot of symbolism, a lot of ritual, a lot of specific things that have to be on the table, sometimes a, a place set for Elijah. And there's a lot of things that go into this. But this, for a Jewish person, one of the three main feasts for the Jews, this is a time of celebration. Yom Kippur is a sober holiday, the Day of Atonement. But the Passover, this is, it, it's serious, and it's, it, it's endued with meaning. But it's kind of a joyous occasion once you get into it. Hey, we're free. We're not slaves anymore. We're delivered. We're, we're not under Egypt anymore. We're God's people. Uh, we're not starving anymore. We have, we have plenty. We can, we can give gifts, and we can celebrate, and we can rejoice. And there's a, there's a joy with that. And all week long, guess what in the Old Testament? In Exodus, they're told, do not eat anything with leaven in it. In fact, very fastidious Jewish families sometimes not only would not eat anything with leaven in it, often take all of the leaven out of the house, no yeast in the house, sometimes running a, a knife down the cracks in the table to make sure there's not a speck of lemon sweeping the house from, from uh, wall to wall to make sure there's not a speck of, lemon be, uh, of leaven because the goal is we want to be completely free of leaven during Passover. What Paul is saying is if that leaven pictures sin, guess what? We have Christ, the Passover lamb. Look at verse number eight. Therefore, let us keep the feast. This is what happens at Passover. It's a, it's a, a, a week of time of family and faith and feasting. And he says, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And Paul is saying, hey, uh, church at Corinth, we're under Christ. Christ is the Lamb. This, the Passover has happened. We're celebrating the feast now into perpetuity. And we ought to do so without leaven, without the leaven of sin. Is there something that we're glorying that is not to be gloried in? Paul says, hey, church, you made a mistake in what you tolerated. You made a mistake in what you gloried in. And then the third mistake they make is you made a mistake in what you separated from. They made a mistake, thirdly, in separation. And I'll be honest, of the entire chapter that we've read, this is for me the absolute most fascinating part of it. Verse number 9 of 1 Corinthians 5. He says, I wrote unto you in an epistle. Now that alone is pretty curious. What book are we in? What's the top of your Bible say? 1 Corinthians. Paul here in 1 Corinthians says, I wrote unto you in an epistle. A previous epistle. Now, what do we call, what do we call that previous epistle? We call it lost. <laughs> we don't have it. The earlier epistle is not a part of the Bible. In fact, not only is it not a part of the Bible, we don't have any copies of it. Say, so how do you know it's not supposed to be a part of the Bible? If it was supposed to be part of the Bible, we'd have a copy of it. And there's some other reasons as well. We talked about canonization yesterday in apologetic. Here's the reality, though. Paul says, in this letter, there's an earlier letter that I wrote. Interesting, right? Now, if you've ever had a hard time interpreting a part of the Bible, you're going to relate to the next passage here. Because what Paul says is, you misunderstood what I said. You misinterpreted my earlier epistle. 
So he says, here's what I wrote to you already. Like last time you got a letter from me, it contained this. We don't know how many letters Paul wrote to the church. I think probably four. We know at least three because here he references an earlier one. And he says in verse number nine, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to keep company with fornicators. Okay, how do you understand the connection between that command and what's going on in the church? Right? The church is tolerating fornication and that which isn't even named among the Gentiles. And Paul says, here right at the end, he says, okay, I told you guys, don't keep company with fornicators. See the contradiction here? But he says, hey, you didn't apply it correctly. By the way, that's one of the reasons we have a class like methodical Bible studies and sermon preparation and these hermeneutically focused classes because we know it's important that we interpret the Bible well because an inerrant inspiration doesn't guarantee an inerrant interpretation. So the passage here, Paul is saying, hey, I wrote to you in an epistle to not keep company with the fornicators, and what you guys did with that command was, <laughs> wasn't even, was not even close to what I was telling you. So he's going to correct their misinterpretation of this earlier passage. Verse number 10. Yet not altogether fornicators of this world. What do you think the church did with the earlier command to not keep company with fornicators? Paul's correcting them here. They were separating from fornicators in the world. They were failing to separate from fornicators in the church. And Paul said, just flip that around backwards and you'll be okay. You did it literally the opposite of what I wanted you to do. You were tolerating fornication in the church, and you were separating from fornication in the world. It should be the opposite. He said, I told you in my earlier letter, don't keep company with fornicators. I was not talking about fornicators in the world. Verse number, not, verse number 10. Yet not altogether fornicators of this world, <clears throat> or of covetous, greedy people, or extortioners, swindlers, we could say, or with idolaters, those who worship idols. Guess what Paul says here? Don't miss this. Paul says, if you try to separate from fornicators and from greedy people and from swindlers and from idolaters, if you try to separate from people who are sinful in the world, the consequence is what? End of verse number 10. Do you see it? You must needs what? Go out of the world. Paul says, hey, if you try to separate from everybody that does sin, if you're like, oh, that guy's a fornicator, and, and that lady's a swindler, and uh, that guy's an extortioner, and uh, that, that person's an idolater, I have, no, I have nothing to do with idolaters and, or uh, fornicators or sinful people. I don't do sinful people. Paul says, hey, guess what? If you live like that, you're going to have to go out of the world. Let me get really, really practical with you today. There are some companies that I'm really frustrated with right now. So I, don't, I, I haven't been in, I haven't spent a dollar in Target since last June when they did all that uh, stuff with focusing on kids and transgender and just frustrating me that they're going after kids. I'm not real thrilled with Disney right now. I mean, I'm not telling you don't vote with your money, but I, I do want to say something. If you have the idea that I'm going to only spend money at Christian companies, I'm going, to only, I'm going to only interact with Christians in my life. Some people think like that. They're like, you know what? I don't wear that kind of blue jean because, you know, there's a, there's a, a guy that does 
has, has worldly ideology and leadership with that company, so I don't wear those blue jeans. And I don't drink that coffee because there's a guy in leadership there. He's got worldly ideology, so I don't drink that coffee. And I don't drive that kind of car because they gave money to this fund, and that's not, and they're just acting like the world. So I don't, I, I don't, I don't drive that kind of car. And I don't, I don't use, I don't use uh, 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 that kind of phone because that guy's not godly. And I don't use that kind of phone because that guy's ungodly. Hey, if you needed the software on your computer to be published by a Christian company, pray tell, what are you going to write your projects in? It's a real question, right? Hey, as Christians in, the, in 2023, we've got we've to wrestle with this, right? If I'm, I, I'm a Christian, so that means, that means I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to listen to Christmas, uh, Christmas music. Oh, that's good. <laughs> that's rich, right? Wonder what's on my mind. I'm going to listen to Christian music. And by the way, I'm going on a scale here. I'm all about Christian music. I'm going to read Christian books. I'm going to go to uh, uh, Christian clubs. I'm going to have uh, Christian news outlets. I'm going to have Christian social media. Tell me if one exists. I don't know. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to wear Christian clothes, and I'm going to work for Christian people, and I'm going to use a Christian phone, and I'm going to you know, drive on Christian roads with Christian cars. <laughs> it's just going to be wonderful. Guess what? If you want to live like that, guess what Paul says? You're going to have to go out of this world. How does Pastor Chapel say this? Buy a pup tent, move to Idaho. Have you ever heard him say that? Have you heard him say that? What is he talking about? He's talking about people that say, hey, I can't do California. California has sinful people in it, so I'm going to buy a pup tent and move to Idaho. And the idea is, if you're going to live like this, now we say buy a pup tent and move to Idaho. The, the church in the Middle Ages, they called this monasticism. They called this being a nun or a monk or living in an abbey or a convent. And it's, it's people that are just going to come out of the world. They want nothing to do with it. They don't want to defile themselves. They don't want to keep company with fornicators or idolaters or covetous or anybody. So they, they went out of the world. Okay. Does Paul commend those who for that reason go out of the world? Is that what he's saying? Like, yeah, you should go out of the world. No, he's not saying that. He's instead saying you cannot separate from all sinful people because if you try to do that, you'll have to go out of the world. Have you ever seen this bumper sticker on a car? I saw it this last week. I was out walking the dog, and it was um, uh, N-O-T-W. It's kind of overlap. you ever seen that? What does that stand for? Not of this world. Have you ever seen that? And, and you heard the slogan. We are, in fact, I'll start it, you finish it. We are in the world, but not... Okay, that exact quote's not in the Bible. You probably knew that. But the idea is, it comes from the high priestly prayer in John chapter number 17. Because I think it's verse number 9 or 10. Uh, Jesus says, I'm leaving the world, but we've left them in the world. They're in the world. I'm leaving, but they're in the world. And then in verse like 14 or 15, he says, but they're not to be of the world. Here's what we do sometimes with that. We're in the world, but not of the world. It's almost like this. Well, the mission is to not be of the world. The unfortunate circumstance is we happen to be in the world. Can I say this? Your mission is to both be not of the world and to be in the world. They're both part of our mission. It's not like your mission is to be not of the world, but unfortunately for the moment you have to be in the world. Guess what? God said, Jesus said, he sent us into the world, but we're not to be of the world. 
He prayed in that passage, John chapter number 17, that God would keep us from evil. What Paul is saying here in this passage is be careful because if you want to separate from every swindler and every extortioner and every fornicator and everybody that's not living according to a Christian worldview, a Christian mode of ethics, if you're going to just kind of uh, protest everybody, what's, what's the word when you don't shop somewhere? Boycott, that's the word. It just slipped out of my head. If you're going to boycott everybody, uh, honestly, are you going to use an Android or an uh, Apple phone? Which one can, do, can you get by with not boycotting? Do you see the problem here? And what Paul is saying is, number one, you guys made a mistake because you tolerated stuff you shouldn't have tolerated. Number two, you guys made a mistake because you celebrated stuff that you shouldn't celebrate. And number three, you made a mistake because you were separating incorrectly. You were failing to separate from things that you should have separated from, and you were separating from things that you ought not to have separated from. Now, here's, here's I think, the reality of the situation. As a Christian, we want to please God. I think in the heart of everybody in this room, you want to please God. And we, we want to learn how do we please God. And we know it involves growing in knowledge of His Word. We know that it, our prayer life needs to continue to grow. Our witness, our, uh, the fruit of the Spirit, all these things. You know all these things, right? I want to please God. But if we're not careful, we'll, we'll think that there's maybe an exact correlation between separation and holiness. And there's not. They're different words for different meanings. Uh, uh, can I say it like this? You cannot be too holy. You hear that? Amen. We're called to be holy. We're holy positionally in Christ, but we're called to practical holiness. We're called to that, right? We should be holy people. I'll never forget a conversation I had with Dr. Rasmussen. 20 years ago, he was talking about somebody, and he said, that person is a holy person. Wow. I wonder if 20 years from now, if, if I live for the Lord for decades, if somebody could say something about me, it's not wrong to say that about somebody. I aspire to be a holy person. You can't be too holy. But you know what? You can be too separated. Is that weird? You cannot be too holy. You can be too separated. Let me ask you a question. Say, ah, you haven't convinced me yet. Well, it's right here, but we'll get back to that. Let me ask you a question. Could anyone have lived a life more holy than Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry? To ask the questions, to answer it, right? It's rhetorical. Emphatically, no. Could anybody have been more separated than Jesus Christ in his early, earthly ministry? Would it have been possible? You know the answer. Is it yes or no? Yeah, you could have been more separated, right? I mean, he was actually accused of being friends of publicans and sinners. People didn't like that he wasn't as separated as they were. And, and, and here's an error. There's a, there's, a, there's a ditch on both sides of this road here. You ever heard the story of somebody trying to hire a charioteer to take him up over a mountain pass? And there are like three charioteers there, and they asked the first guy, why should I hire you? And he said, I can run my chariot at full speed within two feet of the edge of the cliff. He was like, oh, that's pretty impressive. He asked the next guy, why should I hire you to take us over the mountain? And he says, I can run my chariot at full speed within three inches of the edge of the cliff. And he was like, wow. So he asked the third and the final charioteer, why should I hire you to take us over the mountain? Uh, how close can you go to the edge at full speed? And he says, I don't know. I've never tried. And he said, I'll hire you. 
By the way, I would have too. I'd have hired him too. But guess what? Life's not that simple because in most areas of life, there's a ditch on both sides of the roads that I usually drive on. And if I'm only focusing on one, I may well end up in the other. And the problem is what Paul is telling us here, we have to have discernment as Christians. We are called to a holy life. Put away the leaven. But don't make the mistake that you can separate from everybody that has sin in their life if they're not saved, because that would require that you go out of the world. And that's not our mission. Verse number 11, he clarifies that. That was the misunderstanding in verse number 10. In verse number 11, he clarifies this. In verse number 7, he says, Now I've written unto you to not keep company. Here's the phrase, don't miss it. If any man call himself a brother, if it's a Christian, and they're a fornicator, or a covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such an one, know not to eat. I've looked at this a couple different ways, and it's possible I'm wrong, but I do not believe he's talking about the Lord's table here. I think he's talking about fellowship. I think he's talking about literally, don't go to Starbucks with them, don't go to McDonald's with them, don't eat at their house, don't have them in your house, separate from them. There are some people that you need to separate from. Paul's going back to his main thrust here. I tell my kids all the time, I've got four kids in my house, and I tell them, you cannot choose if your friends will have an effect on you, but you can choose who your friends are going to be. You know that, right? What Paul is telling this church is you need to be more diligent about those that are called a brother. Verse number 12. For what have I to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within? Remember, flip it around. Stop applying the biblical principles of morality on the unsaved. Start applying them on yourselves in the congregation. Verse number 13, but they that are without God judges. Can I just pause right there and say, we ought to take solace in that verse right there. Have you ever looked at something on the news and you've seen people that are bad actors? And maybe it's crime or maybe it's just sin or maybe it's somebody just flaunting something that it's just frustrating. You ever, you ever see that on the news? I'm sure, I know you don't get a whole lot of news now, but you do some and over the summer when you see news, you ever see just people that they're destroying property or they're violating people's rights or they're taking parents' rights from their kids? And you ever just get frustrated? Surely you get frustrated. You know what you need to remember? God judgeth. Hey, God's going to judge the world. God doesn't need you to do what's his responsibility to do. God's going to judge. And while we get the privilege of sharing his grace and the message of the gospel, God's going to judge. Every iniquity, every transgression, every rebellion, every sin, God's going to judge. Hey, that can help you take a deep breath sometimes and say, you know what? God's going to judge. Those that are without, God judgeth. But don't forget the main message. Verse 13. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. Paul says, hey, church, <laughs> we got a lot of things we need to talk about here. We're going to talk about, you know, suing people. We're going to talk about apostles. We're going to talk about getting married. Let's start right here, though. There's these reports that are everywhere I go that you guys have sin that's awful, and there's a mistake in what you tolerate. In church, there's a mistake in what you glory in. It's not the cross. It's your unrighteousness. In church, there's a mistake in how you're separating. 
And I wonder if you and I can recognize tonight, we're going to need these principles in our life. Hey, you remember Daniel? Daniel followed God fearlessly in Babylon. You know what? We are going to need to do the same. Daniel thrived in Babylon by God's grace and in God's way. And we are called to do the same. And we can take comfort that we can as we follow Scripture.